Welcome to the Mirror Stage podcast, where we explore the Pacific Northwest through the stories and experiences of the people and its communities. Hello, everyone. I am Kiki Dominguez, and my pronouns are they, them. I am co-host Hazel Gibson. My pronouns are she, her. So, Hazel. What's been going on? What's new? We both had birthdays. Happy birthday. Leo season. I know. Happy birthday to you. Ah. Do we dare share the age that we have leveled up to in the game of life? Yeah, we can do that if you want. I'm now 3-0. I am 32. Woo! Hardcore. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you do? Did you have a full birthday week celebration? Are you still partying? Oh man, I am not. I am not. But, and it was pretty, I was like really dreading this birthday. So I was just kind of like, no, don't, don't, let's not talk about it. I don't need anything. Don't give me anything. Blah, blah, blah. Which is like the total opposite of my existence. (laughs) But I had to work and I've had a very full schedule this summer. So my birthday was on a Wednesday, went to work, got a beer afterwards, didn't tell anybody it was my birthday, you know, that kind of thing. Didn't want to broadcast it, but my best friend who lives in Denver pulled together some last minute, like, come up here and let's celebrate you. And so I'm very thankful to her because I do like to celebrate birthdays and um, whether they be mine or others otherwise. Um, So yeah, we went up to Denver, had a good time, did a little, little clubbing, Went to this awesome brunch place called Happy Camper. If you're ever in Denver, I highly recommend. Um, it's just super retro outside. There's a DJ. It's basically a day club. <laughs> and uh, and then I saw this hilarious stand-up comedian. I hadn't laughed that long and who knows how long, you know, tears streaming down my face. This, this black stand-up comedian, he was so good. Godfrey, if you ever get to see him, I also highly recommend. And this is not birthday related, but guess what I watched what did you watch (laughs) did you yeah okay (laughs) I'm like excited that you watched it so we could probably talk about it but at the same time I'm like that's cool what did you think (laughs) but I digress please tell me what you've been up to what you did for your birthday on my birthday well it my birthday was on a Tuesday so this Mm. midweek birthday yeah. nonsense I Ugh, want a whole weekend <laughs> <laughs> um but I originally wanted to go to like this day spa that's out here but it was all booked up so I ended up going to GameWorks with my sister and so we went to GameWorks and played video games all day and then we went to we also went to Cheesecake Factory because why not <laughs> and then um and then I came home and I took a nap to uh, a Muppet Christmas Carol it's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> it's July. I know. Well, it was, but it was July. What is wrong with you? <laughs> well, because I was like, I want something that I could fall asleep to and be perfectly fine if I like wake up randomly. But I love that movie. I don't have. When was the last time you saw that movie? It's a I solid. I think I've ever seen it all the way through. Don't hate me. That'll be your next movie mission that I have to send you on. I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> do you hate Christmas? We can do you do hate Muppets? No, I'm not a snitch. <laughs> I swear. We can do this movie review in December when it's okay. far more appropriate. Okay, fine. But 
recently, my best friend from college came to town. So that was fun. So I just messed around and didn't work as much as I should have been for the last like week. But that is okay. We had a good time. And now she is gone back home. Um, yeah. And then I am, I have two things that I'm looking forward to that I've been doing. So I'm looking forward to, I have Counting Crows is coming up. We're going to go see them in Spokane. And then we're also going to see them. They're coming out here in Redmond, Washington. So we're going to go see them at least twice. I'm trying to convince Brian, my partner, to do a third stop in Portland, but we will see. Counting Crows? Yeah. Are you familiar with Counting Crows? No. They uh, they were a pretty big 90s band and they've been performing around for a while. And I'm I'm a big fan. I really like their music. OK, I, I really I, I dig 90s music. Like, are we talking uh, alternative rock, indie something or more like hard rock, classic rock? Yeah, I'd say like more alternative and indie. I'll send okay. you some stuff. I think I think you'd probably get a kick out of it. They have because they've been making music for so long they have a lot of different kinds of music and it's really interesting um and then i'm i am also currently in a movie watching challenge so i know you're gonna love this hazel because this is what it's gonna be like for the rest of this month and for uh, until october is um i am watching a hundred new horror movies in 92 days yep that sounds like a lot of that sounds like a serious time commitment. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I know last year I did 31 for 31. So for October, I was like 31 new horror movies. And then oh, okay. I can dig that. Yeah. Well, and then I saw this hashtag on my one of my like many horror outlets that I like subscribe to. And it was like, this is what's happening. And I was like, oh, I could I could do that. Well, we're going to see. We're going to see if I can do that. Wow. Does this go all the way up to Halloween? <laughs> mm-hmm. So it started okay. uh, August 1st and it ends October 31st. And have you been faithful? Yeah, I've been watching some. I, I started in the game a little bit late, so I need to catch up because you have to watch a couple in, in a day for some of them. But like I sometimes have insomnia. So the other night I woke up at like 3 a.m. and was like, that's cool. I'll just go watch a scary movie. You're crazy. Wow. <laughs> Gosh, what am I? Yeah, I can't. I can't top that. I don't. I don't know. No comment. <laughs> uh, but I do love Halloween, so I'm stoked for you. And yeah. Anyway, in the Heights, I didn't get to watch it in theaters. Mm-hmm. It wasn't showing in theaters here, unfortunately. So I got it on YouTube, and I watched it on my laptop. And I watched it in two chunks because it, it's two hours and twenty minutes, y'all. Yeah, it's long. It's long. It's a little long for me. That's my first thing. I think I would thoroughly enjoy the show, much like you said on the last episode, in person, because there's just so much more um, energy that you can grab onto, even if the show isn't that good. Um, I, I don't know. I found myself a little underwhelmed. And like my favorite numbers were the opening number and the closing number. And maybe it's because I wasn't in theaters, but it, a movie shouldn't have to be like that, you know? Um, but like, I wasn't necessarily moved and I just kept hearing similarities that I feel like Lin-Manuel he improved on in Hamilton so that the similarities and like the style and the rapping and how even characters introduce themselves I was like oh this is his like this is what he uses when he writes like and I just think he improved and did it better in Hamilton but 
that's my feedback. Yeah, so I I hope that you get a chance to see the show live because yeah. it is also different. They they took some things out of the story for this one, which was an in, I don't want to say interesting choice because it's a choice I don't agree with because they talk a lot and I don't know if you've read any of the reviews about the whitewashing of a lot of these characters. Well, yeah, and- I heard something about colorism that he had to apologize on Twitter, and I guess I didn't understand what was wrong. Uh, the lack of Afro-Latinx representation was wrong, but also the in the uh, original show, there's a lot of racism towards Benny. Oh, who, yeah, from the Hispanic community from the from yeah from the Hispanic community and from the dad. Uh-huh. I, I forget the one girl's name, yeah. <laughs> but Vanessa? Um, or no, the no. other girl, the yeah. girl that he's dating or likes. Yes. And so that is something that gets like left out. And so then again, we go back to this, like, nothing's happening. (laughs) Like what? Nothing's, nothing's going on. Where's the, where's the drama of the show? Right. Um, There was, that's the thing. Like, I felt like there was no huge, I wasn't sucked in by anybody's like struggle or story. I really wasn't. And so that's why I was just kind of underwhelmed the entire time. So yeah, I would love to see the original in person in an audience in a theater. Anyway, so what's new with Mirror Stage is, as you know, we've been kind of taking a break from the programming because we pumped out 12 months of digital programming last year. Um, We're slowly starting to get things back in gear and that is going to start in essence with... um, our 20th anniversary gala we um, mentioned in the last episode with our kind of special um, interview that um, that we were celebrating 20 years mirror stage was celebrating 20 years in july and we're doing the 20th anniversary gala virtual next month and all of the folks that uh, we reached out to some mirror stage alumni family people uh, we consider alumni artists and whatnot and and had them say something special and put together this video montage it was actually a really cool experiment but anyway Kiki you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about our gala yeah so mirror stage our gala I'm really excited we're going to be celebrating our 20 years and so there's going to be a zoom presentation of scenes from the top 10 shows of the past 10 years um, there's a lot of different shows I'm currently working on reading them all so that I can give a little bit more insight into what scenes I think would be interesting and which scenes I think um, really help to encompass the theme of that show but everybody who celebrates with us is going to have an opportunity to get some at-home goodies so we have a couple different tiers of pay of pay options for people which is always really great we do really try to make it accessible for people who are our alum but also artists and any kind of discounts we can help so make sure that people can be a part of our shows and then again we always have our website in the show notes so you'll have an opportunity to see you know what we have going on learn a little bit more about each play that we're going to be showing scenes from and also grab yourself a ticket and and if for some reason you can't attend the gala I mean again it is virtual this year we were going to try to do something mixed and in person but 
without a secure venue and with the fall approaching and some uncertainties in the air, we thought we would, our last gala last year was a success virtually. And so we thought we'd do the same thing again. But if for some reason you cannot attend, we are always welcoming donations of any kind for the podcast, for future programming. You can donate at the website, mirrorstage.org or super conveniently text play it smart to 206-888-6477. That's 206-888-MI-RR. So we'll see you on that beautiful evening. September 18th, y'all, September 18th. Please mark your calendars. Anyway, um, what do we, uh, what are we talking about today, Kiki? Yeah, we are interviewing the artistic directors and founders of Dacha Theater Company. So uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Dacha or like, hmm, that sounds familiar, tell me more. Dacha is a theater company that's based in Seattle, and they specialize in devised, immersive, and playful work. They are constantly in pursuit of new ways to tell old stories and ways to make new stories resonate, to bring them to audiences at their most pure and earnest. Their stories are full of movement, comedy, and audience interaction. And they believe that the audience is a crucial player in every story and that stories are at their most powerful when they balance joy and despair. So you'll be hearing from Kate Drummond and Mike Lyon. And they have been working really hard this past year to bring some really creative and outside of the box um, online content. Um, you'll get to hear in the interview, I rave about one particular show they did basically a year ago called Robot Face. Um, and so if you've never seen a Dacha production, I'm just gonna say, you know, give them some love, give them support you will have a good time. They are a guaranteed good time. And they're all about making the audience and the actor comfortable in the room. And I, I really love that. They're, they talk about um, taking what the room, the rehearsal room feels like and those mistakes that happen, just, just living in those and taking those in and incorporating them into their shows so that that, that like stress of like making a mistake and not trying to show the audience is is removed. And it just makes everyone, it gives everybody the ability to just relax and make fun of each other and have fun with each other. So I enjoy the work that they do. Yeah, and I think that it's really good that we as a mere stage are getting a chance to interview them and chat with them because storytelling is really big for them obviously as a company, but they really strive to with the idea that everyone has a story to tell and they also are great with sliding scale ticket options so you can pay what you can pay what you will things like that so it's really a good opportunity for us to be chatting with another organization that feels so strongly about making sure that everyone's story is told and that everybody is compensated for their work and that everyone is able to see shows at a price that they can afford Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so glad they could join us. Um, however, last minute, but without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Dacha co-artistic directors, Kate Drummond and Mike Lyon.
Well, hey, thank you so much, Kate, Mike, for joining us on this early Friday morning. <laughs> um, I just want to start off by asking you to introduce yourselves to our listeners in case they don't know who you are. And, and that can be, um, we've been asking our guests um, what their origin story is. And you can take that however you like. For some people, that's like from birth to current status. Uh, for some people, it's their introduction or inception into um, the theater community in Seattle or just theater in general. Um, so if you each would like to share your origin story, um, whoever is comfortable, you can go first. Well, uh, my name is Mike. My pronouns are he, him. Uh, I'm one of the co-artistic directors of Dacha Theater. Um, origin story. Uh, I was born, I'll start a little bit, birth, birth, near birth. Uh, I was born in Moscow, Russia, um, and I grew up uh, in, for a part of my time in Moscow, for a part of my time in LA, for a part of my time in New Hampshire. Uh, so I kind of uh, was always exposed to a lot of very different influences, and I think um, I internalized that the norms of society are like, you know, here in Los Angeles in elementary school, things are exactly this way. And if you do something else, you're weird. But if you go back to Moscow for the summer, things are the opposite and the everything is the opposite. And that's just the norm here and that's the norm there. And so everything is kind of a little bit relative depending on where you are. I started doing theater somewhere early middle school, I think, and probably, you know, school theater, improv, uh, but kind of when I really started finding my footing was when I started getting into physical theater. Um, and I studied a lot of mask work in college and went to the Academia dell'arte in um, Italy for a semester um, and studied masks. And I think my theater has always been very much outside in, body first, um, physical comedy, or just activating the body, very specific like takes and borrowing a lot from street theater traditions. And also I think a lot of my college career, partly due to interest, partly due to the space available at my college, I did a lot of theater outside in found spaces. Uh, so I kind of really developed a love for the space as part of the story, the inherent limitations and challenges of any given space, which always exists when you're not in a place that is set up for theater, um, are part of the story and part of the process and usually lead to really exciting discoveries. So that kind of got internalized into my work and I think has also been very true in Dacha, which we'll probably touch on later on. So that is me. Hi, I'm Kate Drummond. I use she, her pronouns. Uh, I am the other co-artistic director of Dacha. Um, and I came to Dacha and to Seattle by way of Maryland. I grew up in Maryland and then moved to St. Louis for school uh, and then moved out here for the Seattle Children's Theater um, teaching apprenticeship. Uh, and that is kind of what drew me to Seattle. But interestingly, children's theater kind of also drew me to 
theater in the first place. My first theater exposure was trying to get community service hours when I was in like eighth grade, assisting my mom with a elementary school theater. And over the years, kind of crept in more and more. Um, I think a big turning point for me was in college when I had the opportunity to really study Shakespeare for the first time. Uh, And I'm not sure. In some ways, I think it feels odd that it took me until sophomore year of college to really study Shakespeare. We sort of skipped it in my high school career. Uh, But the first time that we really got into text study was a huge light bulb moment for me. The light bulb kind of went off of like, oh, there's actually a, a method that feels reliable for me to approach this. Because I think I worried for a long time that I didn't understand or that there was some like artistic thing that I didn't have, you know, and so that bar of entry kind of went away the first time that I studied text because it was a thing that I could learn and then apply and then suddenly the door opened and I could picture the play in a way that I never could before and so that dictated a lot of kind of my early theater experience was very text oriented because that was the first thing that made a lot of sense to me and interestingly we have kind of swung away from that in Dacha but I think some of those same Uh, As a director, I have developed a very like ritual-based practice, a lot of kind of those formulaic things. I have been thinking about tracing back to that kind of text study that it is fun to know the rules for me and then make something that has no rules or appears to have no rules. But knowing them at the beginning was something that kind of defined my entry into theater. I just wanted to comment how fascinating it is that you two, as the co-artistic directors of this very unique, very awesome theater company, are these two very structured backgrounds, the text and the Commedia dell'arte or the physical theater work. And in my high school, when I was doing theater, we touched on Commedia dell'arte for like maybe a week or something. And I just enjoyed and loved the, the structure that Kate, you were talking about, something where you could be like, I can learn this, I can apply this, but I love that those things that ground work, you know, text and, and physicalities. My experience is so similar. In college, it was like a week of mask work. And then it was just a guest instructor. And then I was like, oh, wait, this is going to change my life. Like this, this, I get it now. And then after that week, I found a study abroad program and went to it because I was like, oh, this is what I've been kind of looking for to make me understand how to do theater. Yeah, I mean, I think, The other part of what I did in college that I suppose in some ways links right into this is that I was very involved in the improv scene, which if you had talked to Kate as she packed up her truck to drive to college and said, hey, in six months, you're going to be on an improv comedy team, she would have said, absolutely not. (laughs) Like You're thinking of someone else. So sorry, I'm actually not that person. But I had a similar experience with it of I still to this day roll my eyes at, you know, the men in plaid shirts were like, oh, you just get up and say something funny. My day job now is literally being the education director at an improv theater. So now I know that they're wrong and I teach them that they're wrong. But learning the kind of the formats and the structures and the, again, the way to say like, 
we're going to go in with these tools and make something is certainly another thing that Mike and I have in common that we both had some degree of improv background. And I think certainly as a parent in some of the work that we're doing at Dacha, that, that spontaneity or that, um, how to have a tool to make it up, to keep the story going, things that are intentionally left blank in the scripts to be improvised upon. Thank you both. And it's so fascinating to hear like your individual origin stories to kind of think about how Dacha got started. Because like having seen some of the shows, I'm like, oh, I can see all of this. This makes sense. So (laughs) I'm curious on what is the origin story of Dacha? And I also want to add in there like, how did this name come about? I want to know about, yeah, the origin and the name. Kate, do you want to talk about seeing an audition listing? Kate looked ready. <laughs> I'm very ready. I love telling this story. So in the summer of 2016, I was bumping about having done a variety of improvised shows. And I remember saying to my roommate, Beth Pollock, who is now a producer for Dacha, uh, but at the time was my roommate and friend that what I really wanted to do was just some silly Shakespeare in the backyard. If I could do that this summer, gosh, would that be nice? And truly a week later on TPS, on the theater Puget Sound audition board, there was an audition call for a play called Dream Things True, which was a a retelling of Romeo and Juliet that was going to happen in someone's backyard. Um, And I think the audition listing said the bunk bed thing but also said some like I think it was very odd I think it was like oh it's it's a neighborhood play we'll be going all over the place you know we'll do this and this and this whatever it was I was sold I was going to go a fun fact is that Beth my roommate was on vacation at the time and had she not been Dacha might not exist because the audition was in a church basement in Wallingford and Beth said, don't do it. Don't go. This is bad. (laughs) Like This is a scary thing. And walking up to it, I certainly had a moment where I was like, maybe I'll turn around. There was one like handwritten, you know, audition with an arrow pointing down some dark stairs. Uh, But once I got in, it was so fun. It was a group audition, which is something that we still do to this day. And I ended up being cast as Juliet, which certainly I then had the thought of like, well, maybe it'll be super strange, but who's going to say no to playing Juliet over the summer? So sure, let's do it. And we did the summer. By Tech Week, there was a group of us that were starting to feel like this is really fun. We're having a really great time. It was very devised, very organic, very, very a lot of the things that Dacha is today, I think if you just look at the film of it or the photos, it is hard to distinguish it from the shows that we have planned with the mission in mind because it was so much of those things and was so much of a jumping off point for what the Dacha mission became. By tech, we knew we wanted to keep going uh, and thought, well, if we're going to keep going, we ought to have a name so we can tell people who we are. And so for opening night, we figured out our name after discussing a lot of possibilities. I remember sitting in the backyard and seeing 
like just looking for inspiration and saying, gosh, roundabout, we could be called roundabout. That's a great name. And then learning that that is an incredibly well-reputed regional theater in New York that I guess had the same inspiration I did. But on opening night, we introduced ourselves as Nantucket West. Uh, it was not particularly well received. People kind of rolled their eyes at it. They're like, oh, Nantucket West. Okay. And then we ended up getting rained out opening night. And we said, okay, great. Let's take a wash. Let's think of a different name. And then we eventually came to Dacha, which I, I will let Mike talk a little more about the impetus of the name itself. Yeah, I'll add just a little context to what like the M. Night Shyamalan, like what's happening on the other side of this um, as Kate's walking to the church. Um, I had just moved to Seattle and I was really kind of after college, I went back to Moscow for a while and did this weird marketing job. And I was like, this is terrible. I need to do theater again. Um, so I moved to Seattle and I didn't quite know where to start. So I was like, okay, well, I know how to do theater outside. So I'll just do a show in my backyard. And this kind of idea of Romeo and Juliet as a bedtime story had been living in my brain for a while. So I just said, okay, I'll do this. There's going to be a bunk bed and the bunk bed is the balcony. Um, so I made this uh, posting and then Kate showed up and a few other folks um, who are still involved in the company to this day, including Patrick Hogan and Nathan Whitehouse. And uh, yeah, we, we put on the show. And um, because it had this really warm uh, community, neighbors hanging out together in the backyard feeling um, one of those nights that we were brainstorming, it really made me remember summer at the Dacha, uh, which is Dacha's is a Russian uh, summer house, basically. And a lot of people who live in big cities go out to the summer house in the summer, oftentimes just with grandparents. I would go with my grandma as a kid, and it feels like a place of escape from city life. Actually, I've been reading a ton of articles over the last year of like Russians escaping quarantine to the Dacha because you have like your small plot of land and you do gardening and there's usually no internet. Sometimes there's no running water and you have to drive in traffic for six hours to get out of Moscow to get there. Uh, but it has this feeling of escape, of magic, of kind of very summery um, being outside and spending a lot of time outside uh, with family and with friends. So the feeling and the word in English sounds fun, like dacha, although a lot of people think it's daca, um, uh, but that's okay. The cha, like dacha cha. Uh, so I said, yeah, about well, this Russian word, I think we're kind of capturing the feeling uh, that is associated with that place, in my mind at least. And I think the word itself is fun and quirky to English speakers who don't know what it means. Um, so that became the, that became the name. Just a, a follow-up here, since we're learning all of this fascinating information. Um, so being, being from Moscow, I'm just curious, like, do you speak Russian on the regular? Were there other Russian words that came to mind as potential names for the theater company that held significance to you? Yeah, I speak, I mean, I speak Russian with family and when I'm back there, I'm bilingual, though I definitely speak English more often than Russian, um, unless I'm doing translating work or something like that. I don't know that anything else, I kind of started thinking in that direction because we were, uh, as Kate said, we were kind of hitting up a bunch of names that already existed for theater companies. 
I don't think I remember anything else that jumped out as at me. I, a lot of impression words are also really hard, even harder than dodges to pronounce. So I was like, this is not going to be good for viral marketing or anything. And so, yeah, I, I think, I think, but I think the Russian theme, we kind of set the name and then we've had to live up to the name a little bit. Uh, I, I mean, I was going to be doing theater that would be Russian inspired anyway. Uh, but we've definitely done a lot of shows to fit the name. Our second show, The Snow Queen, was um, an original translation of a Russian play based on a Hans Christian Andersen story that my, me and my uh, co-translator Ethan Wilcox did. Um, and then later we did a production of The Seagull that had a few Russian actors and it had it was bilingual and sometimes they would speak in Russian and the idea was that the older folks in the show like the mom was Russian they were immigrants and so she would speak to Konstantin in Russian sometimes and he would respond in English uh, which is a kind of typical situation that I've observed around Russian community of parent-child interactions um, so the kind of interest in Russian text and Russian themes and also the constantly trying to capture that kind of summary escape feel uh, magical transformation feel has are things that are kind of I think inherent to me and Kate anyway but the name has really solidified and uh, instilled in the company. I totally love that you guys have that too ground to and to refer back to it, it, it keeps you in line with who you are and in your origin you know and I, I have to to say that I completely get that that feel that you're going for at your shows I've, I've attended many of your shows I think the first one was your Hamlet Dice and I was just so so impressed I I love Shakespeare I love love Shakespeare love, love, love Hamlet. Um, and so I was just blown away by what you and your company were able to do with all of that text and all of those actors. It was, it was fun. It was, um, it was magical. People were constantly transforming. So I just, I really admire the work that you guys do. And so going back to that, so Hamlet Dice, there was the Pride and Prejudice. Um, I think, I saw something else that you guys did uh, that was an immersive show that was really fun. I can't remember what it's called, but obviously this last year and a half has been like a crazy whirlwind of like theater companies going, oh gosh, what do we do? Zoom theater. That's a thing now. Hopefully, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I did one Zoom show, but I, we wanted to ask like what kind of shift that you guys had to uh, to take going from what kind of programming you normally did versus like switching to this online format to keep audiences engaged and to to stay alive with your souls you know and with the company what was that like for you yeah um I think we were very lucky in a lot of ways that Dacha the way that we run a rehearsal room and the way that we create work always jumping off from that devising platform and starting from a very kind of lateral place, uh, which is something we do in all of our shows, even our more scripted, um, like Jen Silverman's The Moors or Lila Rose Kaplan's The Light Princess, those shows where we actually started with a script and ended with the same script still had that kind of practice. And so we knew that we 
could do it. I think from the beginning of the pandemic, the question of whether we could make a show was one that we knew the answer to. So mostly we were thinking about how and why and like whether we should. When in the early pandemic, um, Mike and I are both doers. Uh, We are both people that really are most comfortable when we are in a project or involved in something. And so I think for us, pretty quickly, we were in the place of, well, let's figure out what we can do. Let's see what, what we can make happen. And even before we got a production off the ground, Dacha was very busy. Uh, we started the pandemic doing, um, we created these story times to kind of introduce ourselves and our community to the idea of us being online. So once a week, we would have a company member read a story on Facebook Live uh, and find a, find a book that they connected with as a kid or as an adult um, and read it out loud. And that was really wonderful. We got permission relationships with places like the Penguin House and the Random House. People said, yeah, fine. Uh, we still occasionally get emails from them. I think we're still technically allowed to read all those things. Um, they opened up a lot of their licenses as the pandemic started. We thought about things like digital karaoke. Uh, we ran digital trivia for a long time, kind of in search of what can we do. Uh, and our guiding light really became, we're a devising company. A lot of our work is is site-specific in some way or other, and all of our work is immersive or interactive. So we created as a guiding light for ourselves, what, what would be a thing that we couldn't do in person? What is theater that doesn't make sense in person? And that should be what we should do online because uh, we won't have an opportunity to do it in person. And the other big thing that got us to our first major digital show Uh, which was Robot Face in August and September of last year, is that ever since Dream Things True, a big part of our mission and our season has been this kind of sprawling, spectacular summer show. Uh, Our summer shows in the past usually average around 20 cast members. They always take place in a park. Um, They sprawl through. The audience tends to be able to move in some way or other, whether it's traveling through the park with actors or just separating, you know, asking an audience to travel away from a parking lot and a little bit away from concrete and man-made things to hang out a little bit closer to the, the, the lake or deeper in the woods. And we wanted to do that. We had already had auditions for our summer show that we thought we were going to do, uh, fun fair which would have been an interactive, immersive carnival. And we wanted, we had seen so many people that we liked. And I think that was another driving force was like, gosh, these people are great. Like I want, I want to work with them. I don't want to lose this opportunity. And so we ended up approaching the directors that were attached to Funfair. Uh, Nick O'Leary had pitched Funfair to us. Um, and then Nathan Whitehouse had created Ghost Party, which was another immersive show. Um, I I suspect it is the immersive show that you saw, Hazel. Um, It was wonderful. Uh, But those both had the feeling of what we were going for for the summer. Um, And so we approached Nick and Nathan and said, 
Do you have ideas? Can you pitch us some thoughts? And that was kind of our, our jumping off point. And since then, we've made a bunch of digital theater. Uh, we did Robot Face. We did a streamed version of a kid's show that we made a couple summers ago called The Bee Man of Orn. We did Yarn Unraveled, which was our take on a cryptid hunting web series where we actually went and filmed a bunch. We, we made two pre-taped episodes of the web series that were pretty much just a web series. I think we pretended it was theater a little bit, but it's basically just a web series. We went into the woods and filmed ourselves and then put it online. But that led into a live episode that was streamed. We did a thing called Kaleidoscope, where we took the idea of Twelfth Night and an hour rehearsal practice we do something that Mike brought in from a teacher that he worked with called Essence Pieces, where actors can create a piece getting at the spine of a character. And it can be anything. Uh, we generally ask people to do roughly a minute, avoid using text or speech, and instead try to get into music or design elements. Um, but it has become things like our, when we did Midsummer, our bottom, their essence piece was lip syncing to like a classic country song with a backwards baseball cap. Or in Dice, we use it quite a bit because actors can bring in their essence pieces and then we get to compare with each other. Uh, so Mike had an essence piece for Sylvius and As You Like It where he drove in the rain and cried while listening to a sad song. Um, things like that. Uh, we, we spread out for Kaleidoscope and asked actors to make short versions of a moment of Twelfth Night. And then we ultimately did Secret Admirer. Uh, and I think all of those things drove from this place of what is possible right now that won't be possible when we're back in person. Mike did most of the streaming and completely learned how to do it from square one. So I'm sure that that would be an exciting thing to talk about, Mike, that kind of learning curve. But that's how we got started with it, at least. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think the first, the, the children's show that came mentioned, we did in Zoom. That was the only show we did in Zoom, actually. And that was... It was fun, but it was so hard because it was before Zoom had introduced any of its features where you can move people around. So we had to do, we had to like memorize, okay, if we turn on our camera in this particular order, then you're on my right and I can talk to you on my right. Or if we turn it on in this order, then you're on my left. And it was just kind of a nightmare. Um, it, in some ways it was fun to like try to uh, hack it a little bit. And it was kind of like working in a found space weirdly. Uh, but it was really exhausting. So then we switched to using Twitch, which was really fun and exciting. And there was a huge, I mean, there is a huge gaming community and a huge community on Twitch that we were just not super aware of. But over the pandemic, I kind of got a little bit more into it. And um, we did, the feeling of doing a show on Twitch felt a little bit more like doing a show in a park because sometimes we would get random people who just wander in because Twitch just has... 
people browsing and people would wander in. Sometimes they would be trolls and sometimes they would stay and watch the show and be like, wow, this is really cool. Uh, so we did, yeah, we streamed everything to Twitch and we kind of, yeah, skates on guiding principle of it things you can't do in person. It's like robot face involved creating a programming language. Um, it was programming actors who were playing a bad AI bots. So it was a thing that re and there was an audience that was in the game show. So they were in zoom and then they were being broadcast to Twitch with people watching. That's a different audience. And I was like, this, you cannot, this would be harder to do on stage. So it makes sense to do online. Um, and uh, Secret Admirer as well had an element that was uh, the characters were playing kind of an old 90s outdated sexist board game uh, that where the boys, the dating, it was a dating game and the boys came to life and the characters would pop out of the, of the game board and interact with the players. And again, it was a thing that this would be, I, you could do this on stage, but this makes a lot of sense in the medium. The streaming, we used OBS, Open Broadcasting Studio, that there are many, many YouTube guides, and I spent kind of all year on YouTube learning how to do things and uh, skills that I haven't had to use this summer at all. So it's like, we did so, I think a lot of people had this experience of just like learning this thing that's massive and, and never ending and from the first show we did to the last show we did, I was like, oh man, if I knew all the stuff that I know now, it would have been so much easier. But I think the really cool thing is the audiences that we got because we had people, I mean, like personal level, I had people watch Robot Face, like my family did, my mom playing from Philadelphia, my dad from New Jersey, my godfather from Moscow, like that was cool. They were all in the same room, the Zoom room. And then uh, also we just, we did around the clock, which was a 24 hour theater festival. And we had people working in five time zones, um, like participants. We had a random professor from the UK who happened to see around the clock because one of his students was in it, contact us and be like, you guys are really cool. You're doing such cool digital theater. Can we, can I talk to you? So we talked to him. Um, so it was just, we actually maybe we got written up in timeout for some of our shows. So we actually really got more press and more visibility than we often do with anything we're doing in person, um, which is exciting, but also it's complicated. I have complicated feelings about it. So, yeah, I mean, I think we were just wildly fortunate that we are small enough that we didn't have to worry about a space and we could pivot easily and we were used to kind of creating things from scratch and figuring out how to make something happen. Um, so we did a lot of that throughout the year. The timing was also incredibly fortunate for us in that we closed the moors the first weekend of March, and we had not yet begun process for our next show. Uh, we, we had sent out casting offers, many of which had not been responded to by the time it became clear that our next show was not going to run, uh, which was meant to be the world premiere of Danielle Molman's Dust, uh, was supposed to be our next show up. And so we were very fortunate in that we didn't have to answer questions of what it meant to stop mid-process or what happened to a show if we were already in rehearsals for it. Um, and we were able to put the brakes on the dust production. Um, we ended up, because we had not started process, we ended up 
not contracting almost anyone that was going to work on the show originally. Uh, I believe the designers that were already contracted are still under their like right of first refusal. So when we do it, they will be back if they'd like to be. Um, we did pay the rights for the show because Danielle had set aside quite a bit of her time and she was preparing to spend several months in rehearsal with us to make this world premiere. Um, and we were really interested in continuing with it. And we were, again, in this really fortunate position of having just closed a show that was very successful. We had a relationship with Theater Off Jackson to put on the Moors. We had recently closed Pride and Prejudice, which was also very successful. And at the time, we thought that we were about to deposit $7,000 worth of ticket sales from Pride and Prejudice. Uh, little did we know that we had ticketed brown paper tickets for, brown, for Pride and Prejudice. Brown paper tickets was our ticket provider. We were one of many companies whose checks bounced when we went to deposit them at the beginning of the pandemic, which we were okay. Uh, and we actually did here a year and a half later, they finally paid us some of it, which was on our birthday, which was quite exciting <laughs> to see that come through. But yeah, at the beginning, we, we were really well poised, I think, to be able to make anything um, and just the right size where we pay our performers and our artists for shows, but our producing board uh, so Mike and I are on a volunteer basis. We don't have a salary or anything like that. Um, we don't have a space and we were between processes. So we were incredibly lucky to be in a position to say, we really can do anything right now. So what do we want to do? And we had a community of artists that were eager to work, that were eager to get into something, wanted to be busy, wanted to make something new with us. So yeah, I think we I think we were very fortunate to have kind of all the ingredients we needed to to make something new over last summer and and beyond. I just want to take the time to applaud your company for those ingredients. Okay, so you have like a younger staff company, so the technical edge. I mean, even though you took a bunch of YouTube courses, yes, you maybe had a technical edge that some other bigger theater companies don't. Robot Face was incredible. It was the funnest Zoom piece of theater I'd seen all like pandemic um it was engaging it was immersive you know other bigger companies did like pre-recorded zooms of plays it just doesn't work on the format it does not work and Kate what you were saying about like what can we do that we couldn't do in person or on a stage that's the viewpoint you have to go from at this and that's why you guys were successful in my opinion and so I just want to applaud you because Robot Face was the coolest thing I'd ever seen and it, I had a blast uh, my good friend Audrey Harold was in it and she was the one who's like you gotta watch this and I was just like you guys are amazing so I applaud you for thinking outside the box because you can't just do regular theater on zoom it just doesn't it doesn't work for me thank you that's so good to hear the audience perspective because that was the thing this year that was the hardest we thought we were doing cool things but like uh you, you don't you're not on stage you're not seeing the people immediately reacting to it um when we're on twitch people are just commenting and if they're it's fun when they're really engaged but it's definitely draining not to have the immediate gratification of being able to gauge how a thing is being received from the people in the room um so that was that was a challenge I mean, that the whole world experienced for a year. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about that challenge. I, I think another, we had that 
two of the big challenges we didn't anticipate that we ended up thinking a lot about were what do you do when you can no longer perceive your audience, uh, especially for a company? Dacha is so founded on interactive work uh, and a lot of what our mission is about is this kind of we use the words playful and immersive and interactive a lot in our mission statement and in our description of ourselves. Uh, but it really comes down to we think that stories are something that everyone tells together and we want the audience to feel like they're a part of the story as we're going. And we want to get away from that. I, even today, as the artistic director of an immersive theater company, when I see the words immersive theater, my tummy clenches and I go, don't make me talk. Don't make me do this. <laughs> Just let me sit in the back. And so I want to make work that makes people not feel that way. I want, you know, I want the audience to respond because they are delighted and cannot help but respond or to respond because it has not occurred to them that they might do the wrong thing. And that over the years, we have developed a lot of tools to figure out using kind of our eyes and our ears and our perception, who is excited? What does this audience member need? How can I caretake them so that they have this amazing experience? And going online, we were starting from zero on that because we couldn't perceive them unless we could see or hear them, which Robot Face included that as a goal of we knew we wanted to get some audience members into the Zoom room with us so that we could actually interact more directly with them. But the other thing that we struggled with in a similar way was how do we build the community cast vibe that we want? How do people who have never met each other reach the level of comfort and play that I think defines a lot of our shows when they're interacting behind a screen? And we ended up using Slack quite a bit for this, which we'd always used as a production side. Um, that's always been how we've done the production elements of our show. But we eventually put all of the actors, crew members, designers on one Slack and kind of encouraged the use of the uh, random channel as a way for people to interact. And that evolved eventually into using the Zoom chat as well for a similar thing. And I think it made a really big difference because people were able to kind of vent off steam in the way that you would on a break if you were, you know, in the side of a rehearsal room, eating a granola bar with a new friend. Uh, the random channel became that same, you know, post a funny meme or react to something that happened in rehearsal today. Um, and I think it led to a comfort of the platform that allowed then the actors to share that comfort with our audience and just started shrinking that space a little bit and got us thinking about using the chat and using how we could involve people more directly. But those are big questions that we had. Yeah, that is such a, I think that, that is what I was thinking of too. Um, Kate also, as Kate was saying earlier, Liz really use, likes to use ritual, ritual in rehearsal and her secret admirer, um, she introduced like 10 minute uh, green room space before the start of rehearsal so people can come in and just chat with each other on Zoom, which was really amazing. Uh, we also started doing, um, with Robot Face, we started doing closing night boxes where we would fill boxes with um, like a little mini bottle of champagne or Martinelli, some chocolate, some cards 
some funny things to put on. And we delivered those boxes to everybody for closing night or mailed them to the people who were working across the country on the show. And then after the show, everybody uh, put on the box, like their costumes and we hung out together on Zoom and had a little bit of a quarantine party. Um, and I think it really made a difference. Like there's so many people who started working with us online who we had never met in person before. Um, who, you know, I would go to deliver a prop to their house and be like, wow, you're really tall. Um, and this summer, I think maybe six, five or six people in the shows we're doing this summer are people who started working with Dacha online and were working with us online throughout the pandemic and then now are working with us in person. And that definitely, I feel very proud that we were able to create a space that felt like a community uh, while just being in the digital space. Thank you both. It's interesting too to hear about how, like you're saying, like how are you morphing all of these online shows in the best way that you possibly can? And then how is that then translating to getting back in person? So I have I have two questions for you. I'll ask one at a time. First, we've, we have been talking a little bit about DICE because we all kind of know what it is. But for the people who do not know, can you please talk a little bit about how you all started DICE, where that idea came from, and then what it is. Absolutely. DICE is a series that Dacha produces roughly once a year um, that we've been doing since our first year. It was formerly Shakespeare DICE, and now we kind of just call it DICE because we've done uh, Jane Austen as well, Pride and Prejudice DICE. And the format is that there is a small company of actors, we've averaged seven or eight that learn the entire text of the play that we will do. And then on the night of the show, an audience member rolls dice to see who will play who, and the show starts immediately. It is this kind of balance of, I think it came from, I guess now that I have said my origin story all at once, it feels very easy to kind of trace where it came from. But it came from both of us being people that really loved text work and loved classic theater but also loved improv and the energy that came about that. It also selfishly came from a conversation that Mike and I had maybe about Hamlet. I don't remember what show exactly, but we kind of were like, yeah, I want to play that part too. Who, why won't people ever cast me as Claudius? I'd be a great Claudius. And getting to a place where like, well, we're in charge of a theater company. Let's just make a show where we can play everything uh, because we want to. Surely other people want this also. Um, and it turns out that they did. <laughs> so that's been very fun. In terms of mission, I think uh, I directed the first dice and was also in it, which was not as fun as it sounded. Uh, it was also very fun, but definitely stressful. I didn't do that again after that first year. But the mission from the beginning and in making the format and continuing it, we really wanted to get at this idea for me, the merit of classic text, the merit of doing a play again after 300 years of doing it, is that it is, there's something universal about it and it is for everyone. Uh, we don't owe Shakespeare anything. He's gone, he doesn't care. I don't think he cared at the time either, but he certainly doesn't care now what we're doing with his plays. And the thing that is wonderful about them is that they can be anything, they can look like anything. The text is here for us to play with and the task that I find rewarding about it is 
making audience members feel like they really understand and get to play also. And my forever soapbox is the, I, I don't like the feeling of, well, you have to study and you have to sit down and think very hard and read the text very carefully. And, you know, maybe you don't know the rules and so you can't do it. Once I learned the rules of how to read the text, I also quickly developed the opinion that everyone should be able to approach it the way they want to. And when we approach Shakespeare as this like close analysis text study, we are telling the people who don't think that way that it's not for them or the people who don't have time to sit down and read it that it's not for them. And that's one way to approach it. But I think another way to approach it is doing as you like it in a karaoke bar and still singing funny songs and asking people to dance if they want to dance. And that Dice really kind of gets at that. We wanted to put on stage the question of how many different things can this character be? How many different things can this play be? And so the first couple times we did it, uh, we did Twelfth Night and we did Hamlet. And they were a little more scattered because it was just possibilities. Um, I think Hamlet, we started kind of getting stuff together a little more. Twelfth Night was proof of concept. We just wanted to see if we could do it. Uh, and we could, and it was fun. And then as the years went on, it started to develop into this random, the randomization of characters started bleeding into the format as well. So our As You Like It, we shuffled the scene order. That was randomized as well every night, which sounds impressive. The scenes in As You Like It don't really need to be in any order because in each act, you kind of meet each character once. Uh, and it doesn't actually matter what order you meet them in. The story is relatively unaffected, but it sounds very impressive. And we played around with that. We did Pride and Prejudice, which was an original adaptation written by um, Helena Pennington and Nick O'Leary, who directed it, both of whom are company members with us. I've lost my train of thought a little, but I think uh, we really wanted to get at all the different versions of a character and the story. And how can one audience member potentially watch seven different Hamlets go up and get to see in front of them and experience themselves how different it is to see me play Hamlet from Mike playing Hamlet from Beth playing Hamlet. So they get to play along a little bit. Yeah, I think also some of the things that have moved us more towards stronger concepts for Dice is that early audience feedback was, we frequently got feedback that was like, well, I liked your production of Twelfth Night, or I liked your production of Hamlet. I thought that was a good production of Hamlet, but I forgot that it was diced after the first 10 minutes, which we were like, oh, well, good. <laughs> like, then we did it. But it's also part of it, you know, you want them to remember that it's happening. So we kept trying to figure out how to up the, up the ante. Um, on the other hand, it did make people come back and be like, oh, wow, these two performances of Hamlet were very different. Um, and I think there's also a, it's just, such an adrenaline rush, like the moment when the dice, the die gets rolled and who's going to play which part. It's like, as a performer, there's nothing that compares to that adrenaline and just the fact that like, you might have to remember all of Hamlet in a second. And I think that translates to the audience. I think the audience feels that. And it's also very important, I think, to us. I think accessibility of the text is definitely important, but also kind of, we, we respect it and we, 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 keep long cuts of text because we like the text and for me i i really like the poetry of the text and i feel like having mem trying to memorize it as close as possible to word perfect it's never word perfect but striving for that 
and striving to really play with the poetry of it in the middle of this really wacky kind of full of improv joyful thing but still having that uh poetic uh side to it is really important and i think that is that kind of mix of genres mix of serious and silly approach to work is something that is exists throughout all of our work we talk about how we feel like comedy really needs to have some tragedy and despair and tragedy really needs to have some comedy and, and joy um and that that is something we try to weave into whatever we're doing that kind of the opposites and i think that relates to what i was talking about with my origin story as well i think early on and it's certainly still true the one sentence mission summary of dice was we wanted to take the energy that we get to experience in a rehearsal room playing with a text like that and bring it into the performance so that the audience gets to have that same playful this could be anything energy and over the years, we eventually developed this very, I mean, Dacha, the fourth wall is not present really in any of our work, but in Dice, we especially got into with As You Like It and Pride and Prejudice, particularly this energy where I, as an actor, I'm going to share with the audience when I don't know something because it's fun for both of us. It's much more fun if I turn to them and say like, I don't remember what this line is. We're going to figure it out. than if I like hold very still and think very hard and panic in my brain like that's not fun which eventually developed into bits uh where mike did this a lot and jared fernandez who was in pride and prejudice did this quite a bit as well where they would intentionally get themselves in trouble during pride and prejudice or as you like it so mike had a recurring bit where he would try to put on a jacket that was much too small and every night he would act as if oh in all the dice chaos i didn't know the jacket was too small and now i can't get it on um if you saw him do that in the audience uh, for as you like it and you thought it was organic i'm really sorry to shatter this and tell you that it was planned jarek would do this as well during pride and prejudice he would put himself on the wrong side of the stage right before he had to be a certain character and then have a moment where he'd go oh no and like run across the room to be somewhere else uh, and it just, I think it gave the audience permission to laugh with us a little bit because we were not worried about it being perfect. We were just worried about it being fun and about telling the story and stories don't have to be perfect. They just have to happen. Uh, and it was very fun. Mike, I, I saw that you had a thought. Oh, I just remember that like one of the most amazing moments for me in a day show was I was doing like a wildly famous Phoebe speech and as you like it and I and I had a moment of just blankness like I've never had this this total just I have no idea what comes next and I was just there and Jamie Riggs who was playing Sylvia's just finished the line for me because everybody knows each other's parts so you can kind of there's a really I think you when you watch it you see a sense of us supporting each other and tossing the ball to each other and being like, okay, well, they don't say their Rosencrantz line, then Guildenstern can cer certainly say this line and it's not going to make a huge difference to the audience. <laughs> yeah, and I like this idea too, that it's really bringing a lot of fun to these classical texts. Because if we think about Shakespeare and like you're saying, Pride and Prejudice, there is a lot of Sometimes it's fear. People are like, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand it. So I won't, I won't go or I won't like it. Or there's this expectation that it has to be done a certain way. It needs to be done like this. And then you look at 
it historically, specifically with Shakespeare, and you're like, no, it was just a fun time. Everyone was having a good time. This was just a troop of actors going around doing this show. So why can't we bring that fun and that energy back? I also like that idea too, that like, like you were saying, oh, well, somebody else knows the line. Everybody else knows the line. And just being in productions and missing that energy, because that always happens in productions. You usually know your scene partner's line because you're like, that's my cue, or this is what happens next, or this is my favorite part, just those different kinds of things. So that's just a fun, fun energy to bring back to that classical text. Your summer shows, because there's two summer shows, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about devising them, directing them, and just to give some inspiration for like what your COVID safety protocols were for your casts. Yeah. So we were doing two shows this summer. Mike and I are for the first time directing at the same time, different shows. Uh, We both were on the directing team for Hamlet, but now we're doing two different ones. And that came from actually a place of thinking about COVID protocols, because as I, as I kind of mentioned earlier, our summer shows have always been very sprawling. Uh, And as we were thinking about this summer, we wanted to find a way to still have that feeling of we are working with dozens of artists, but we also knew that we didn't want to be creating a rehearsal room full of dozens of people this summer. And so the solution was, well, we'll just do two shows. And that way we can work with a bunch of people, but they will actually kind of be separate from each other. We'll be in two little pods. And so both shows are completely devised. I directed Star Play, which is a play that I have been thinking about for about a year and a half now, if not a little longer. It is about, uh, I learned about the Pleiades Cluster, which is a cluster of seven stars in the Taurus constellation that because of their position in the sky, almost literally everywhere on the planet, they are visible for some amount of the year, if not most of the year. And this has led, and they're very visible. They're, they're one of the most easily identifiable things in the sky. Everyone has probably seen them, even if you don't know what they are. Uh, and this has led to independently, almost every culture in the world has some kind of origin myth for this cluster. And it is that idea got me spinning a year and a half ago. I was like, this is great. This is amazing. This is this like idea of universality that really appealed to me. And around the same time, I learned this at the time, true scientific fact, which was that the star Betelgeuse, which is in the Orion constellation, right next door to, or relatively close to um, the Taurus constellation was dimming and people thought it was going to go supernova. And I developed this idea around a story about the seventh brightest star in the Pleiades cluster, which again, in a real science way, some people only see six. The seventh star flickers in the Pleiades cluster. And so a lot of mythology around it talks about the lost Pleiad and wonders where the seventh star is. So I wanted to tell a story about where it was. And and maybe what it was doing was going and trying to save this other star. And so the devising process for me, I came in knowing what the story was and knowing the feeling I wanted it to have. And I knew that I wanted it to have music and I didn't really know how to get there, Um, but I knew what I wanted the end result to be. Uh, So for star play, 
I had an amazing collaborator in Kyle Levine, who is our music director and wrote all of the music for the show. And then we had a strong team with Ryan Long as a dramaturg, uh, an incredible cast. And we did a lot of just playing around with science facts. Uh, And we early on had this idea of the character of the asterisk, which was a little star. And then my first iteration of the story and the kind of early devising this past spring, thinking about the show, uh, we thought maybe the asterisk didn't know that they weren't like a star in the sky. They thought maybe they would be eventually and just didn't know quite how to get there. Uh, and that story eventually, that's not actually a part of the play now. We, we found a different um, asterisk story, but we used that as a baseline in a lot of our devising to play around with finding the asterisk's voice as a kind of narrator character, a footnote character that can help us know the science that of what we're seeing at the same time as experiencing the story. And we just made a lot of little scenes. Another thing that is really true of my devising practice is that it is very music-based and very structural. I really think best if I know a, a boundary that I can play within and then we can stretch it as we go. So we made a lot of gestures for different words and uh, we took poems and songs and made sequences to go under them and then kind of took all of those pieces and scrapped them for parts for the show. So we said, great, let's take the gesture from this and maybe the introduction from this poem we did and the chorus of our movement keys to Sarah Bareilles' Cassiopeia. And we'll put all of those things together and that will be the first scene of the show. But maybe, Mike, I will toss you to talk about Deers before we get into the talking about COVID policies and how that kind of defined our rehearsal rooms, especially at the outset. Yeah. Um, so as it seems like is a theme in this, this uh, discussion, uh, I had kind of the exact opposite place to start from, which is that I didn't really know what the show was going to look like, but I had an idea of what I wanted to work on, which was clowning. Um, it, that's something that I... I mean, I've done a lot of mask and physical theater work, but I, I haven't done a ton of clown work. And I knew that for a while, I've really been wanting to do it. And I've kind of been thinking, oh, I think the next step in my development as an artist is probably some sort of clown school. I've been thinking about that for a while and kind of imagining it in the future. And then, you know, there was a year of not being able to be outside or not in a, in a room with people at all. So I was like, okay, I just need to do it. Um, I can't just keep waiting for theoretical future opportunities. So we started with some workshops outside in April where we just came into the park and we played and clowned. And uh, there are the, the person who ended up being the clown director for the show, Audrey Spinozola, has a lot of clown training and she was part of these uh, workshops. And we... I mean, I'm, it's, it's interesting to talk about the show because I'm kind of afraid of the word clown in the connotations that we have in American culture with it of like scary um, circus uh, birthday. Uh, these are all not the clowning definitions that I grew up with. Uh, I think um, in European clowning, it's a lot more these kind of 
strange creatures that are all about experiencing emotion fully and really activating mirror neurons in the audience. And they're not always uh, comedy emotions. There are any kind of emotions. It's just like a creature that feels on a level that a child feels and does that in front of an audience and hopefully activates that feeling in an audience. Um, the most influential show that I've ever seen is Slava Pulian's uh, Snow Show, which is a clown show by this amazing Russian clown who's world-renowned. But so Deers in Headlights was I wanted to get some people together and work on some of those skills of um, telling a story with no words, directly uh, connected with an audience, kind of experiencing really intense emotion, having very specific physical actions that are completely set, a lot of takes, uh, letting the audience see each thought. So the devising process started with a couple of weeks of just training that was split between, I did neutral mask work, which I feel like, which I was talking about earlier, changed my life in theater because it's all about just, you only need one look and you just need to look at the thing that happened and you need to notice the accidents. Like anytime uh, this, there were a lot more accidents outside than inside, but anytime something happens on stage that isn't supposed to happen, like a bird flies by, or if you forget your line, or if you trip on something, you look at it and then you look at the audience and you kind of are searching for those accidents and those mistakes. Um, and, uh, also, and you are trying to just get into your body that you're not trying to hide anything on stage. Because I think the theater I was doing before that I learned in high school earlier, I was like, okay, act, pretend like nothing else is happening. You don't notice the things that go wrong. Whereas neutral mask and clowning is all about if something goes wrong, notice it, share with the audience that it went wrong and be delighted or be terrified or be embarrassed, but just share that feeling with the audience. Uh, which is a really hard to do and really hard to um, train out of yourself when you're trained to ignore things like that. Um, so that we worked a lot on that. Uh, we also would do kind of movement improvs that we started with some viewpoint training, but we very much were trying not to be too formulaic. And the kind of game that we developed that ended up crafting a lot of the pieces in the show was we would all go up on stage and move around until somebody observing would be like, oh, we're baking a cake. Um, rather than finding it organically, somebody would just have an idea and yell out, oh, you know, we're, we're all underwater. And then everybody would aggressively yes and and start doing whatever that, that person suggested until we got tired of that activity and then do something else. So it, it was training and then movement improvs. And then Audrey Spinozola led us all in discovering our clown. And is our clown higher status or lower status? Uh, what are their relationship with the other clowns in the group? Um, how do they uh, react in situations? What is the emotion that guides them? Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they scared? Are they delighted? And uh, then we assigned essence pieces for each clown of come in and do a piece that kind of captures the essence of what your character is, be absolutely anything. And a lot of those things ended up in the show. Uh, Bailey Ellis did a piece where he put his tie in a toaster and was preparing for, to me, it, it was all no words. So to me, it felt like he was preparing for a date. So that became one of the narratives in the show. Um, one of the first times Paula Nitka was in her clown she kept saying i want to go to the moon and just jumping up and so that's the other big narrative in the show is her trying to get to the moon 
uh, everything kind of, we developed a lot of little scenes, little details, um, movement improvs, and then Audrey and I sat down and were like, okay, how does this craft into some semblance of a story, uh, something mostly I think a thematic journey Oh, and I forgot the most, the, the biggest part of this, which is that it's a drive-in. Uh, that's, I should have started that. Uh, it's a drive-in show. So audiences can watch outside or from their car. And we have an FM transmitter. And Derek Fernandez designed an amazing soundtrack that you're listening to that matches up. Sometimes it's sound effects. Sometimes it's music that sets the mood. So the show kind of, it didn't start out this way. Uh, but it has now turned into it's kind of a clowning ode to drive-in movies. So we have a lot of references to classic drive-ins um, and the feeling of being at the drive-in and the nostalgia associated with that. Although all of us are pretty young, not all of us, some, uh, but a lot of the cast is pretty young. So it's kind of made up nostalgia that we have uh, about being at the drive-in. And um, yeah, it's just it's a unique, strange show that is hard to describe a little bit but i hope it's really fun and i hope is it's kind of all about the reason i wanted to do clowning now is because clowning is like you are there with the audience and you have to look at their face and you have an emotion and that emotion is going to translate to them and you're in the moment and there is no screen in front of it like this like to me being a clown and being kind of silly and stupid in front of people is and directly connecting with them is the most opposite you can get from the technologically advanced, complicated things that we were doing six months ago. So I wanted to do that now. Yeah, I think the the now question for Star Play was definitely the, as a spoiler, I suppose people will be listening after it's over, but as a spoiler, the play ends without Beetlejuice being saved. The play is actually about Pleony dealing with the fact there is nothing she can do to save her friend and what that what she can do for herself and how she can cope with that uh and how she can find joy in the moment that she's in and find connection um and that was again thinking about like stories to tell now that was the impetus of like I want to tell a story now about a story about loss that is funny and sweet and uh, heartwarming rather than a story about loss that is gut-wrenching. But thinking about the COVID practices in the room, in some ways, I think our online theater really prepared us to come in because we had just spent an entire year thinking very critically and very structurally about our rehearsal room and thinking about things like, well, we will because online, you have to do everything on purpose. So in order to create an environment where people can casually chat, we have to plan to open the Zoom room 10 minutes early and make a breakout room for the production team and like all of these things. And I think that that intentionality really served us this summer. I also have a practice as an intimacy director. And so we came in this summer with a lot of structure and a lot of kind of scaffolded boundary conversations and we, the biggest thing all summer was just no one should ever wonder what is going on. It should be a very clear expectation set for everyone at the same time. So from the beginning, uh, our company was entirely vaccinated and that was a requirement to participate. We had an amazing rehearsal space with Billings Middle School, our summer sponsor, who we love dearly, has a gated blacktop. 
like a concrete kind of play area outside of their school. And so we could rehearse outside while still being, when we rehearsed in parks, it's a lot harder to control who is around. And so thinking about the safety of our cast and company being in a more controlled, like private outdoor space meant that we could actually guarantee no one was going to run up to you or um, you were a lot more in control of who you were coming into contact with. We started rehearsal masked and remained masked until the state lifted the mask mandate for vaccinated people outside. Um, So we abided by those expectations and created uh, a culture and an expectation in our rehearsal room that honestly is going to stick around. Like it, it was critical because of the COVID expectations, but it is also a practice that we kind of think should be in every rehearsal room of doing contact check-ins early, being really explicit about like, okay, cool. I am excited about you touching my hands, arms, shoulders, and legs with your hands, arms, shoulders, and legs. We are all going to agree that our heads will never touch. And just like setting those very explicit boundary expectations and checking in on them every day and giving people the tools and the space to say on any given day if that changed. We did all of the kind of expected things. So we did temperature checks every day. Uh, Everyone agreed that if they were feeling at all unwell, they would stay home. The two casts stayed mostly separate. And in the kind of middle, once we unmasked, which happened about halfway through the process, when we would kind of cross casts, if we were going to get in close contact with each other, we would re-mask because we were not really the same bubble there at the beginning. So things like we were each other's test audience uh, and we would jump in there. But I think really it came down to a lot of communication, trying to be as clear as we could be and giving a lot of opportunities for feedback and for people to consent out loud and say like, yes, this works for me, but also putting a space to say, you know, what would work better for you and, and letting people tell us that and really hearing that. And I think it was... So far, so good on a lot of that. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it helped a lot that we were rehearsing outside. Um, And when we would go inside, we would be masked. Uh, And uh, if anybody had any, was feeling at all well, they would get tested and be remain either home or come in and stay distanced outside and masked um, until they got the test result. So it was, as Kate said, really fortunate space being at Billings Middle School and uh, the summer and having complete outdoor space. And for the few times there was rain, giant gym to spread out of inside, which makes me, yeah, feel good about the summer and definitely have a lot of questions about what comes next. Yeah. I think we also had like a, a bunch of swings and we committed early on to budgeting for, we're gonna do, Star Play is a seven person show with a 10 person cast. And just building that out from the beginning to say, no one even needs to think twice about not coming because we've got plenty of people. We're going to be just fine. Um, And again, that's a thing that I think should stick around because we should never come in when we're sick. That hopefully that sticks around, you know, and we have that structure in place that people can take care of themselves. So we do have just two minutes left. So I really wanted to ask quickly um, if you can in 30 seconds or less, Um, What's something you look forward to in the fall and planning for potentially indoor theater? 
Well, one thing I'm looking forward to is figuring out how late you can be outside in, in the fall. <laughs> um, how, what are ways you can do things in the rain um, or under tents? Um, what is, we, we always do outdoor summer shows, but we haven't done a lot of outdoor fall, winter, spring things. And I think that that is something that we are very likely to consider. Uh, I think I am looking forward most to moments where you get to share something with a stranger. Uh, and we've gotten to do those a little bit already. And I guess it's not particular to indoor theater, but I think as we start getting more and more comfortable being closer to each other safely, moments where you get to share a moment with a person you don't know are things that we haven't gotten to do in a very long time. And we've seen a couple of those little moments already sparking in our shows this summer, but thinking about, you know, in our indoor shows, two audience members who had never met spent an hour trying to crack someone's mystery in Ghost Party. And that moment of connection was so wonderful that I'm, I'm really excited to get back to some of that. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to chat with us and hear all about the work that you all are doing. I'm really looking forward to hearing about like your future productions and how everything is going. And I also am excited to see some see what you do with this outside outside in the rain theater. <laughs> I'm here for it. Thank you for having us. It's so amazing to have uh, more kind of arts media in Seattle. It's so, so exciting. Yeah, pumped and so fun to talk to you both. Yeah, great, great way to start a morning. I really enjoyed getting to hear about you both and Dacha. So I will be in touch and thank you again so much for being here. That was so cool. I know I say that every time. Oh no, you say that was so much fun every time. Oh, okay. That was so much fun. This is me. This is my Kiki impression. That was so much fun. It was. It was really fascinating to hear all these different things well i was just on their website before we uh met and um you know was just going over more in depthly like what dacha was what it meant where it came from and the minute he said he was from moscow i was like ah that's where that came from because i was always so curious about that and i just love how unique of a theater company they are i know i've been asked to audition for them before and for one reason or another, I, I haven't always been available, mm-hmm. whether it's schedule-wise or otherwise, but I know their dice shows scare me <laughs> because I don't know if I can see myself doing that, you know? Yeah. No, I know that was my first introduction to it because I was in a show with Beth, who they mentioned a few times, and she was memorizing her lines, and I was like, what are you doing? Well, so how does this work? And then I was like, well, now I need to see this. <laughs> I need yeah. to see this in action. <laughs> Yeah. And so again, like some of the shows we talked about, I'm just uh, consistently impressed by their work. I think I told you I was raving about Robot Face because they just, they nailed it on the head. If, if you're going to do, you know, theater on Zoom, what does that look like? And I think they really, really succeeded. So I'm happy for their digital success, you know? So call to action. Yeah. So my call to action is similar to, I believe, yours last month, which is go see a play. We still have some opportunities to see some shows. And Dacha has one more weekend of shows. And so you can go check out their website to learn more about these performances, as well as see what they're going to be doing next and go ahead and support them. And it's dashatheater.com. And I will put it in our show notes. Excellent. 
Okay, so it is August. Summer, quote unquote, is over for some people who have to go back to school. I'm definitely not jealous, but you know what? It's a time of the year where, you know, it's a big shift for kids and sometimes kids don't always have access to things that they need. I actually just noticed that the Queen Anne Beer Hall, which I used to work at, located in Lower Queen Anne, they are partnering with Hashtag Lunch Bag. It's a national nonprofit organization. Um, it's a humanity service movement dedicated to empowering and inspiring humanity to reap the benefits of giving through the use of social media. So they've created and used bag lunches with love messages as a vessel to spread the love and share their experiences and inspire. But they are specifically hosting a back to school drive through the Queen Anne Beer Hall. So they've got the drop off location is the beer hall. Um, that'll be August 11th through the 29th. That you can also donate online and that's hashtag lunchbag.org, but they're looking for all sorts of school supplies, you know, pens, pencils, highlighters, binders, backpacks, notebooks, anything like that. So if you have spare that's in good condition, or if you want to pick up a few extra items next time you're out school shopping for yours, um, swing by there, drop them off, and also get a beverage and maybe some lunch. It's actually a really good, uh, it's a good foodie spot as well. So yeah, help the kids out, do your part, because education is important. Feeling comfortable while you're receiving that education is important. Otherwise, it's not always reaching reaching us. Well, thank you all so much for listening to our August episode as we come to an end of our of our summer. We will be seeing you. We'll be seeing each other and talking to you next month in September. In- in the fall. Yes. So have a good rest of your summer, whatever little bit of summer you have left. And um, you'll hear from us next month. Yeah. Thank you for listening. This program is supported in part by a grant from the Washington State Arts Commission and the National Endowment of the Arts. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support it and other Mirror Stage programming, you can make a tax-deductible donation via our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206-888-6477. That's 206-888-MIRR. We would like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle the Duwamish and Coast Salish people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish and Coast Salish tribes. Thank you.